Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm Ashley Nasiri, and today we are joined by Professor Melinda Bunton to discuss the U.S. health insurance market. Professor Bunton, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here, Ashley. Professor Bunton is a health economist and the founding chair of the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University. She was previously a health director at the Congressional Budget Office, where she evaluated legislative proposals and directed studies related to health care financing, care coordination, and Medicare and Medicaid eligibility. Prior to this, she was the Deputy Director of Health Economics, Financing, and Organization Program at RAND, where her research focused on insurance benefit design, health insurance markets, and provider payments. Today, we're privileged to have her as our expert guest to shed some light on the formidable topic of the status of the U.S. health insurance market. Professor Bunton, can we start off with broadly reviewing the structure of the U.S. health insurance market and potentially provide a description of the current distribution of health insurance coverage among Americans? I mean, I could talk about this for a long time because the U.S. healthcare system is complex. Fundamentally, we have a healthcare system that for most people who have health insurance, uh, that is supplied by their employer or if they're a dependent of someone who's employed. So that provides the majority of health insurance for Americans. We also have programs, Medicare and Medicaid, which serve as public or social insurance programs. Medicare is for people who are over age 65 or are disabled, and Medicaid is for low-income people. And then, of course, we still have a portion of our population that is uninsured at this point in time. Now, that's the structure of the U.S. health insurance market. Of course, the structure of how people get care is different, and we can talk about that later. So generally speaking, what are the main intentions of the Affordable Care Act, which was enacted in 2010. So the main thrust of the Affordable Care Act was to increase the portion of the population that had health insurance. So at that time, there were millions of Americans, and there are in fact still millions of Americans who don't have health insurance. But the major thrust was to introduce subsidized coverage, which could be purchased by anyone through a state or federally run health insurance exchange, and to expand Medicaid. Now, there were also provisions in the Affordable Care Act that established things like funds for public health, programs designed to save money in Medicare and test new care models and the like. But the major thrust was to increase insurance coverage. From what we can tell, were the legislative changes that were put into place able to accomplish the goals that you just mentioned? So it's a question of to what degree the legislation filled its goals. So I would say overall, yes, the main intentions of the Affordable Care Act were realized. Health insurance has increased dramatically since then, although, of course, we are in the midst of a pandemic and a recession, and so that affects people's ability to purchase health insurance. Also, of course, there was the landmark Supreme Court decision, which declared it would be up to individual states to decide if they would expand the Medicaid program as provided for under the Affordable Care Act. And since a number of states have still not chosen to do so, it hasn't been as successful as it would have been if all states had gone through and expanded their Medicaid programs. And then in terms of the other provisions, they have 
produced uh, a lot of new information. So public health dollars have been spent in ways that if we think about how little is invested in public health, we, we should be thankful that they were there. Uh, and also Medicare has made a number of different changes, done a number of different experiments, and I think we will see the benefits of those. And I have done work with a colleague, and we looked at the cost containment effects of the Affordable Care Act and did conclude that there were uh, decreases in the rate of increase, if you will, of healthcare costs that seem attributable to the Affordable Care Act. How did the ACA impact access to care and health inequities uh, within our U.S. healthcare system? Well, first of all, when you increase people's uh, rates of insurance and their access to insurance, then you do increase their access to care. And there were guidelines in the Affordable Care Act which outlined how generous the policies needed to be. And so many people who could never afford insurance before now either have Medicaid if they live in a state that expanded Medicaid or have access to subsidized insurance through a health insurance exchange. And that insurance uh, has to meet guidelines with regards to what it covers and also what the cost-sharing provisions of that plan are. You may People may be familiar or may have heard in the news about things like silver plans and gold plans. So people have access to much more affordable health insurance, and some people have access to insurance who couldn't get it all at all before because they might have been denied insurance due to a pre-existing condition or the like. And so access to care has improved. Health inequities have also improved somewhat if you think about uh, disparities in access between people who have pre-existing conditions, who may be disproportionately vulnerable populations, people who are low income and the like. Although one thing that remains is that our healthcare system is still inequitable even among people who have insurance. Um, and there are still inequities in the rates of uninsurance among different population groups. So lots of work still there to do, but closing the gap somewhat. Now, there has been a lot of talk about the insurance exchange marketplace and how that being a part of the ACA has impacted how insurance is purchased. There have been some changes to that over time. Where do we stand in regards to that exchange marketplace currently? So where we stand uh, right now is that we are obviously at this moment, uh, at a moment of transition in the executive branch. It was not a priority of the Trump administration to promote enrollment through the health insurance exchanges. The amount of uh, effort and advertising, things like that related to getting out the word about how to enroll through the health insurance exchanges was diminished during that period of time. But remarkably, the market has been fairly stable. And there, uh, so we do see premiums, um, we do see offerings in every state. Uh, and the, there was a lot of worry that fewer people would enroll. And in fact, uh, in particular, fewer people would enroll uh, after people were not required after basically the penalty for not having health insurance, which was referred to uh, in policy circles as the individual mandate, was abolished. Um, but in fact, the markets have continued. They're available in every state, and premiums have gone up over time, um, but there hasn't been as much disruption in the market as some would have predicted. 
Now, of course, you know, the portion of the original Affordable Care Act that was actually enacted after it went through the legislature is different than how it started out. But and that can impact, you know, the next question that I'm going to ask you. But what are some of the shortcomings of the Affordable Care Act and how have these actually evolved over time since it was implemented uh, almost 11 years ago now? Yes, it is amazing uh, to think we've already passed the 10th anniversary of the ACA. And many of the people listening to this podcast really won't rem- you know, remember in particular a period of time when the ACA wasn't in effect. Many of uh, people who are becoming physicians these days have never known of someone who was denied insurance because of a pre-existing condition. So it's really good to keep in mind how much has changed because of the Affordable Care Act uh, when thinking about what are its shortcomings and, and what remains to be done. So I do think that there were a number of small technical things that we could have improved about the Affordable Care Act had it not been so politically contentious. So I was at the Congressional Budget Office after the Affordable Care Act passed, and there were literally dozens of efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So uh, there was really no chance of improving it. So, for example, the uh, issue around the individual mandates, the issue of providing additional incentives to states to expand Medicaid, all of these things became so politically fraught, it was hard to make uh, technical changes and improvements. And some of those technical changes and improvements include things like how the subsidy schedule is structured. So uh, people can come up with better ways to structure the subsidies that might be able to encourage more people to enroll, make insurance more affordable to them, but not necessarily cost all that much in terms of uh, government budget effects. Those technical changes haven't been made, uh, and we might get to a place where they would be able to be made. It's also clear that uh, the subsidized insurance uh, hasn't been enough to reduce the number of uninsured to really low levels. And so we need to get more innovative there. And I think the Biden administration will be looking for ways to expand insurance options for people, especially in states that did not uh, take up the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. So there's some gaps like that that remain. Right. You kind of led right into my next question, which is, what are the major portions of the health insurance market that you believe moving forward are the things that we need to focus on for improvement, new bills, and essentially kind of the evolution of how our market uh, moves along in the future? Yes. When we're thinking about health insurance, I do think that the most important thing to focus on is how do we extend coverage uh, in an efficient way to populations that are currently not able to access health insurance. So we have this very strange situation where people who are between 100 and 138% of the federal poverty level in states that haven't expanded just really aren't able to either get Medicaid or uh, to access those subsidies. That's a really perverse situation. So we need to remedy things like that. We also need to look at the structure of what health insurance paid for. I think maybe when this pandemic uh, is in the rearview mirror and say, 
how do we need to think about structuring health insurance so that we make sure that people are able to get care during a pandemic like this? How do we finance care to make sure that in a pandemic, hospitals and physician practices and the like are not fundamentally threatened because they can't be reimbursed when patients are afraid to come in? Things like that. So there's many, many questions that this pandemic is going to raise about health insurance uh, and about the structure of health care. What do you predict um, will be the major changes in our healthcare system in regards to insurance coverage um, over the next five or 10 years? Well, that's a tough question because we don't know what the structure of our political system is going to look like. I think we're in a highly uncertain and, and transitional phase. I do think that at least for the next year or two, I would expect the Biden team to focus on expanding health insurance options for low-income populations. That's where I would imagine they would focus their energies. Uh, Beyond that, uh, I think there's a whole range of things on the table. When you look at the Affordable Care Act, it actually was incredibly politically controversial, but the fundamentals of it were actually what were proposed by Republicans in the early and mid-90s as ways to reform the healthcare, health insurance system um, to promote individual responsibility, uh, promote uh, standardized offerings of insurance so that consumers could choose wisely between different health insurance plans and the like. So you can see how political discourse around healthcare uh, has really changed uh, over time. And given that, I expect it'll continue to evolve. In the future months or years following this pandemic, as physicians, we will see changes in telemedicine playing a larger role in healthcare, in everyday healthcare, just even outside of pandemic time. Can you give us an opinion about how insurance coverage will play out for telemedicine, either within state or outside of the state of residence for our patients? Yes. If there are any silver linings to this pandemic, one of them will be that it accelerated the rate of adoption of telemedicine to a great extent. Probably in this past year, telemedicine has moved what it would have ordinarily taken five or 10 years to move to. It is doing so, though, under provisional approvals from insurers and major programs like Medicare and Medicaid. So they're saying, provisionally, we're going to cover visits, for example, uh, that occur through telemedicine the same way we would if they were in-person visits. That won't last forever. So there will be a point of reckoning at which insurers and public programs have to decide how they're going to cover or pay for telemedicine on an ongoing basis. I personally believe because patients seem to like it, providers adapted to it quickly, that we will retain coverage for telemedicine uh, and it will certainly become more regulated. It may not be reimbursed at exactly the same level as an in-person visit, but it will be part of our standard practice of care and standard health insurance benefits going forward. But there are a lot of details about that that will still need to shake out um, as the hopefully pandemic ends. Just for comparison's sake, can you describe how some of the other major countries' healthcare insurance markets function and how those can be fundamentally different 
And along that, do they have the same problems that we do with insurance coverage for some of our population? So most other highly developed countries like the United States have insurance systems that cover virtually everyone in them. There are different models. Um, So I would say the Canadian model is different from the model in the UK, is different from the model in Switzerland, is different from the model in Sweden. Uh, And uh, I don't want to get into the details of all of those. But fundamentally, there's either a system that involves uh, a very highly regulated system of insurance at a national level. Sometimes, for example, in the case of Germany, that operates somewhat on a basis of employment, um, but has but fills in around employers, or a national health system that involves the provision of care through publicly owned facilities, as in the National Health Service in the UK. So there's not one single model out there that is the alternative to the U.S. There are a lot of different models um, which use private insurance markets to a greater or a lesser degree. They don't have the same problems that we do in terms of having a large segment of the population that doesn't have health insurance. They do have some of the same problems we do about issues of rising spending on health care. And even within a society like that in the UK, where everyone has insurance, there are still inequities in access to care, use of care, and health outcomes. So just having national health insurance doesn't necessarily solve all of those problems. What are some of the benefits of not having a national insurance system like the one that we have uh, in the United States compared to the countries that have a national insurance system? Well, I'm an economist, and economists like to talk about trade-offs between equity and efficiency. And when we say equity, we don't mean equity in the sense in which we've been talking about it in, sort of in 2020 and 2021 in terms of um, equity among um, racial or ethnic groups. Uh, we talk about equity across uh, different um, income groups, for example, or employment types. And so if we had a national insurance system in the U.S., for example, we would have a single policy for everyone. Um, but in fact, we find that people value different things and people might want to have a less generous insurance policy but have more money to spend on other goods and services. When you have a national policy, you're basically making a national level decision about what's going to be covered and how much it's going to cost. And that means that you might overspend or in some cases underspend what individuals would choose on their own. And from a massive economy perspective, that, those are really those are real costs um, to a society. And in the U.S. in particular, one of the reasons why I would argue we don't have national health insurance is because we have a lot less national agreement on what should be covered and how much we want to spend on it. And we have a lot more income inequality, um, which means that people at the higher end of the income scale are demanding a lot more um, from health care uh, than people at the lower end of the income scale. When we think about U.S. healthcare spending, you know, we discussed that topic a little bit in one of our other podcast episodes, um, but we spend upwards of 18% of our GDP on healthcare in the U.S. How does our insurance market structure play into that, if at all? Well, our insurance market structure plays into that by creating a third party 
the insurance companies that uh, have not historically been particularly interested in containing costs. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but uh, in general, uh, insurers negotiate contracts, pay claims and the like, uh, and uh, keeping healthcare costs down is not their top priority, especially given that many of the largest employers that would seem to have the most leverage over the insurance companies are what is called self-insured, meaning they, they bear the risk and they pay the claims. So that, uh, that introduces that third-party element. That means that consumers who are insured uh, don't bear the full cost of their health care, and thus they may consume more than they would if they had to pay for it out of pocket, um, and on and on throughout the system. I think it's also the case that because we have multiple competing insurers, those insurers are competing with each other for an advantage. Uh, they want to have the best possible deals, if you will, with uh uh, physician practices, hospitals, and the like, that we don't have a lot of standardization in the U.S. So there's administrative waste um, caused by this multiplicity of different insurers with different rules, um, as well as more what we might term economic waste uh, that is caused by insurance and third-party insurance. How can providers on a day-to-day -day basis use this information or knowledge about the U.S. healthcare system to make decisions that better care for their patients? And how does this knowledge and this information of our changing U.S. healthcare insurance system impact our practice on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, that's a great question. And there are so many ways that it would be hard for me to detail them all in a succinct answer to your question. I guess I would say first, just being aware that people may have different insurance status and that they may have to change insurance over time uh, is important for, uh, for physicians. So for example, if you're seeing a patient and uh, they're insured through Medicaid, they could lose eligibility for that if they got a part-time job or if they're employed and change jobs, they could change to a different insurance product. So just realizing that people are in different insurance states and it will affect what is covered for them and how much it costs them. Um, and even whether you yourself will be in their network associated with their insurance plan is very important to realize. Uh, a second thing, which is related, is realizing that your decisions have real financial implications for patients depending on what their insurance covers um, and their income and other characteristics. So just assuming that you can prescribe something or order something does not mean that it will happen. So really having that conversation with your patients about what, it, you know, what insurance do you have, does it cover things? Are you worried about it? Um, might you have to change your insurance in the future? Are you going to be able to cover your coinsurance or your deductible? All of these things are really going to affect that patient's ability to follow um, any medical advice that you might give them. Are there any specific um, resources that you would recommend for our listeners who are interested in learning more about this topic and specifically about the structure of the U.S. healthcare insurance market uh, or uh, any specific resources you have that kind of can keep our listeners up to date on the changes that will be occurring over the next few years? Yes, I would say a few things. 
One is that uh, my colleagues at the New England Journal of Medicine are just on a new series sort of on the structure of the U.S. healthcare system, and that's a nice resource. Uh, the second is I am the deputy editor of a new JAMA publication called the JAMA Health Forum. We'll take a topic and uh, write about it in a commentary point of view, and they, those are good primers on what's going on. So for example, just last week, one of my colleagues, health economist Kate Baker, who's the dean of the School of Public Policy at University of Chicago, wrote about the exact question you asked me, what are the pluses and minuses of having a national health insurance system? So those are the types of things we'll publish, as well as original research, of course. Professor Button, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Do you have any last parting words for our listeners? Yes, I would say that if you are interested in these issues and interested in health policy, there are so many ways to get involved. So whenever changes are made, for example, by federal programs like Medicare or at a state level by Medicaid or states or federal actors for, for that matter, consider changes to insurance law, they listen first and foremost to physicians, often to the frustration of economists like me. But you have so much power as individuals to write or visit your uh, elected representatives, to participate through your professional societies, and to really shape the future of health policy. So I would say don't hesitate to get involved because you would have more influence than you think. Thank you so much for that inspiring note, Professor Button. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode of ENT in a Nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. 